Let me explain a little bit about what we're doing for those of you who are newer, perhaps, and, and don't know what we're up to. This booklet represents the mission and vision statement of Bethlehem Baptist Church produced by the elders and the master planning team over about a year's process. Page one is our mission statement. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And I preached on that page. Turn to page two inside. Page two is the spiritual dynamic that drives our mission. We join God the Father in magnifying the supremacy of his glory through our Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit by treasuring all that God is, loving all whom he loves, praying for all his purposes, meditating on all his word, and sustained by all his grace. And I preached for five weeks on that. Now, we come to page three. Page three is called Fresh Initiatives for the Immediate Future of Our Mission. This is the page which implies and communicates the most change, I believe. Page one and page two are formulated new, but really express old convictions that have been driving us for a long time. But as the master planning team stepped back and tried to say, how is all of that fleshing itself out now and in recent years, they sensed these six areas where we need to work on change. The column on the left are two introductory paragraphs that I want us to read out loud together. Let me explain something before we read them. There are 17, um, what do you call them, task forces, master planning task forces with, I'm sure, well over 100 people serving on those right now, whose job it is to pray and think and ponder and dream and discuss how this document will flesh itself out in the life of Bethlehem in the years to come. And you'll hear more about the upshot of their work in the new year as we try to formulate objectives and give you a chance to respond to them in concrete ways in March. But I want to say to you who serve on those task forces and to all of you, please, in the next four weeks especially, read this page over and over again as a whole. We got a task force on number one here. I'm going to preach on number one this morning for a little while. Number one, relationships of love, the value of relationships. But the people that say that the seven people that are working on that, I wrote their names down here somewhere. Carl Kanowitz, Lucia Brown, Pam Bloom, Steve Stein, Geraldine Kanowitz, Sharon Steichen. Those people and all the others don't just read that one because all of these have a bearing on the others. And uh, there is a flavor to this page. There's an aroma to this page that you got to catch. You can't just take a sentence out and say, well, all right, here's three things. We do that now. There's an aroma. There's a thrust. There's a, a rocket trajectory that, to this page that's different from the old Bethlehem rocket trajectory. It's not totally different, but it's different. It's got a different feel to it. It's different. You need to rub it. You need kind of, hmm, what is this here? You got to pray over it. You got to ponder it. You got to ask, how does four relate to three and two relate to six and five relate to one? And how, what, what, 
did God do when he led 30 people, elders and master planning teams, to say yes to this page? That was no small miracle. I mean, you read this page, and you know the, the Bethlehem of the last 15, 20 years, and say, this is the page? This is it? You say, wow. And 30 people agreed on that? That's remarkable. And it is remarkable. God's hand is on this page. I believe his fingerprints are on it. So, these first two paragraphs here attempt to capture some of the flavor of the whole page. That's what I want us to read together. So, beginning up here with the big O, our mission and spiritual dynamic, and reading all the way to the bottom of the page in that column is what I'd like us to do out loud now. So, let's read it together. Our mission and spiritual dynamic declare that the all-satisfying supremacy of God shines most brightly through sacrificial deeds of joyful love. The cry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of our people is for a fresh, decisive emphasis on relationships of love. Therefore, we eagerly embrace God's call for new, visible manifestations of love toward each other, our guests and our neighbors, with a fresh openness and outgoing spirit to each other and to all new people, we henceforth put understanding above accusation, forbearance above fault-finding, biblical unity above the demand for uniformity. Now, that's an attempt to capture what the whole page is about before we break it down into specifics. But we're going to break it down now. And today I'm going to focus on this first one right here, the value of relationships. We have a whole task force devoted to that now. And I know, I mean, if you're a person like me, you'd say task force, relationships of love. That's like a task force on sex. What good's that? You know, either it's good or it isn't. You can't do anything with a task force. That's not true. Even with sex, it's good for a husband and wife to get together and talk sometimes. Talk. And so it's good for a task force to get together and pray and ponder and look at the church and look at the Bible and look at themselves and say, what's the atmosphere like here? And what are practical things? They're not the whole answer, but they're part of the answer. We've all got to be part of the answer. But a task force can lay out before us and give ideas and share their heart with God for you. I'm really glad that these 17 task forces exist because otherwise everybody would be looking to me to make it all happen and figure it all out. And I don't have the ears to do that. So let's read number one. I'll read it to you this time, and then we'll just take a few minutes to unpack it. First fresh initiative that this master planning team felt we needed to, to focus on was this, the value of relationships. We will take New practical steps to develop an atmosphere where personal, deepening, supportive, faith-building relationships of love are highly valued as expressions of our passion for the supremacy of God's love. Now, what I want to do is take the four adjectives, personal, deepening, supportive, faith building, and tell you what I think those mean. And then close by relating it to our mission statement, which is what happens in those last two lines there. But first, a clarification. 
you might think, huh, this is just another statement, love one another. I mean, we spent 17 weeks in, in the spring saying, love one another. 17 weeks on that series on love. The greatest of these is love. You believe that was this year? Seems like ancient history to me. That was this year. And then on page two, I preached a whole sermon on that line right there, loving all whom he loves. So is this just another restatement? And the answer is no, for this reason. You can love people without having a relationship with them. If my preaching is not an act of love, God's going to spit it out of his mouth. And I couldn't name half the people in this room, probably. And if you don't, if you don't experience my preaching, my attempt to unfold God's word to you as love, I'm a failure or you're blind, one or the other, both. Here's a better example. How many of you, this is embarrassing probably, but I'll do it anyway. How many of you brought or intend to bring today a bag of groceries? Raise your hand. All right, put them down quick. If that's not love, God doesn't want your food. But you don't know who those are going to. You got no relationship with them. Here's a better, here's a biblical example. The Good Samaritan was a story told by Jesus to illustrate how to love your neighbor. So here comes the Samaritan, enemy of a Jew. Jew is beat up and robbed on the side of the road. He stops because his heart goes out to him in, in compassion. He doesn't know this guy from Adam. He binds up his wounds with oil. He puts him on his own donkey. He goes out of way, probably, leaves him at a little inn or motel. He pays, he pays for him. He pays for him and leaves. And I can hear some critics. He left him. He left him. Well, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said he loved him. Go do that. He may not even know the guy's name. Maybe he never woke up. He might have been unconscious. And Jesus chose that illustration as neighbor love. So my point is, you can love people without a relationship. And we ought to. We ought to love all kinds of people without a relationship. So, paragraph one here is not talking about that. It's talking about relationships. Okay? That's the difference. There is a kind of love that needs a relationship. It's biblical. It's good. You want it. I want it. There are people in this church starved for relationships. They get loved by me on Sunday in the big impersonal way. And sometimes they feel it. They get loved maybe by somebody writes them a letter or somebody says hi on the street or somebody does something nice for them, but they don't know anybody. There's no sharing of soul. They, there's no relationships in their lives. They're hungry. And there are others of you that are scared to death of relationships. Just scared to death. And you don't want them. You do really. You just, you just are scared. You do. God made you to want them and therefore you do want them. All that God has for you is in you, if you're a child of God. So the question now is, given that we want them and we're scared of them, how does this task force and the rest of us go to work to just help the atmosphere of this church be such that they happen? They happen and they're good and they're deep and they're rich and they're what they ought to be. That's what paragraph 
Paragraph one here is about. So let's let me just jump into it and make a few brief comments about each of these each of these adjectives. Um, the first one is personal. What I mean by personal relationships of love is different is to distinguish it from functional. You got a functional relationship with your teacher and your teammate and your lawyer and your doctor and your plumber and your pastor and so on. Functional relationships. And when you're together, you deal with each other as professionals. And what do you need me to do? And that kind of thing. That's not personal. By personal, I mean that things that are part of your personhood, part of your heart, part of your feeling life. Get talked about, get shared, things you care about pretty deeply. Um, Dennis Smith is is my lawyer. I'm glad I don't use Dennis Smith as a lawyer very often. Good brother in this church. And uh, he's helped me buy the first house I lived in over there and the second house I lived in over there. He he did all that. And he wrote up our wills for us. So he I have a professional relationship with Dennis. But for 21 years, way before... My Bethlehem days, Noel and I have had something a thousand times more important in our lives with Barb and Dennis than a lawyer relationship. They were in my Sunday school class over at Olivet. And uh, I've known Stephanie since she was tiny. And when I married her here and Dennis was sitting right there, that was something we'd been talking about for 20 years. And that was a mighty moment. We used to laugh. We used to laugh. You're going to marry my daughter someday. I said, God, in a day like this, will we ever live in the same city that long? And over time, you, you spend time together and you go deep and there's joys and there's hurts and there's fears and there's delights and aspirations. And you talk about getting old together. You talk about 15 years from now, and what it's going to be. And, and the whole professional thing, that's just irrelevant to that kind of relationship. And some of you don't have any of that, and some of you are afraid of it. Let me use Jesus as an example so you have a biblical foundation here. Jesus had 70 people. I don't know how he got to know these people. But in Luke 10, 1, it says he appointed and sent 70. How did he get to know those 70? Well, he knew 70. Seventy people go out, and then they came back and reported. So he knew them a little bit, somehow. And then he had his twelve, and it says in in Mark uh, 3.14, he chose them to be with him. Three years, to be with him, twelve. And then he had Peter, James, and John. This is risky business when you're a leader, because he took Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him and left the nine downstairs. And he took Peter, James, and John into that little bedroom where this dead girl was going to get raised from the dead so that they could be a part of it and left the nine outside. And he took, picture this one, he takes the twelve, actually it's eleven now, into the Garden of Gethsemane, he's about to sweat blood as he bears the sin of the whole world on his shoulders And he says to Peter, James, and John, come with me a minute. And he takes them halfway and does something. And then he goes a little farther and leaves the nine way over here. How'd you like to be Andrew? 
Bartholomew, Matthew. What's he doing with those three guys? Now, here's the point. Jesus never sins. He's never sinning in cliquishness. He loved those nine. He laid down his life for those nine. He loved Judas. But he had his three. He had his three. And he had John. Four times it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. His head was lying on his chest at the Last Supper. And he didn't sin. He's not playing favorites in any sinful way here. Now, that's what you need, folks. That's what you need. And I want to stress here that we got to get over some unrealistic expectations. Most of you do not have these, but some of you do. Unrealistic expectations. What? Maybe 400 people in this room right now? I don't know. Give or take 50. And there were that many in the first service. So 900,000 people in these two services today. Some of you grew up in churches where to, to have a successful relational church, you need to have a personal relationship with me. It ain't going to happen. That impulse, that impulse is precious and normal, and I share it. I wish I could be 500 people. I know a pastor in this city with a church a lot bigger than ours, and he told me when we out, went out to eat one time, said, we, I was struggling with how do you pastor two, three, four, five thousand people? And, and, uh, he said, if somebody comes up to me after the service and says, I'm new here, I'd love to take you out to lunch and get to know you. I, lo- I like to know my pastor. He says, if you need to know me to have a, a, a good church experience, you're in the wrong church. Real church growth tactics. <laughs> the point is, God's hand is on us to grow. There are new people in this room. Every Sunday, there are new people in this room who've never been here before. God is calling us to win 2,000 people to himself. This place, Lord willing, will be filled twice in five years. If you say, I don't want that to happen because then I can't have personal relations with everybody, you're in the wrong church. You're already in the wrong church because you can't have personal relations with everybody in this room. And Jesus is saying, that's okay. I couldn't name the people outside my 70 either. Maybe if you can know 70 names, you'd be doing a lot. That'd be great. Know 70 names out of a 1,000. And then know 12 pretty well. And then have three that are soul, brothers or sisters, and have one if God does it for you. Or something like that. Don't, we just got to get out of our minds that, A successful church is where you know everybody. You're going to sit in this room and not know 90% of the people for the rest of your life if you stay here. Unless you are one extraordinary person. And God does raise up a few Rollin Erickson types uh, every now and then. And I praise God for them, and they're a wonderful blessing. Spurgeon could name thousands in his congregation, evidently. I feel so utterly Lousy when I think about that. But Jesus' expectations are not that that come to pass. He had his 70, he had his 12, he had his 3, and uh, and the rest he loved. 
but he didn't know them very well or at all. Here's another implication of this. Right now in this church, there are crises, faith crises and health crises, more crises right now of little and large proportion than eight pastors can be on top of with warmth and presence. And therefore, if your mindset is the only people whose presence and warmth and prayers count spiritually in my deliverance and my strength is John's or David's or David's or Tom's or Jim's or Brad's or Jones, then uh, it won't happen. You're going to be real frustrated. We must build a mindset that personal relations are precious in the body and the body's relations count. Adjective number two. Won't spend nearly as much time on these next three, just briefly. Deepening. Deepening. I chose and commended to the master planning team the word deepening as opposed to deep. Because we're all in process here. They're happening. They're growing. Some are fading out of our experience. Some are coming into our experience. And what we want is an atmosphere where we don't just settle for hi, how are you to everybody. You got to do the hi, how are you thing to somebody. You can't absorb the burden of everybody you pass in the hall, but don't stare at the floor either. It's there in between loves. The hi, how are you loves count. But if that's all you've got, then it's not enough and it won't satisfy their needs or your needs. So. Let, let's do something by prayer and love to create an atmosphere in which it's happening. It isn't, oh good, there it is, it's done. But rather, it is happening and over time and months and years, it happens. I don't choose who my 12 and my 70 are. I have no strategy whatsoever for this. I just let it happen. And I find myself thrown together, a funeral, a wedding, a hospital, a softball game, basketball on Tuesday mornings. I just find it happening. And I let it happen. And I'm not afraid of having close friends or losing those precious relationships to somebody moves away. Let it happen. The next adjective is um, supportive. And there the idea of love comes in because to love somebody in a relationship is to want to make their load lighter. To love somebody in a relationship is to want to make life a little easier for them. To lift some load, some burden. Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens. There are all kinds of ways to do that, but there's a relational way to do it. To come into their lives and want to be a blessing. And let me warn you here. Now, this is hard, I know, and I pray the Lord will not let it be hurtful. If you come into a relationship... Only feeling need and not with a view to meeting need, it won't work. It won't work. And that's hard to say because some of us are so needy. I feel needy sometimes. Sometimes I just say, I need somebody. And if I, if I, if I walk through life that way, stroke me, help me, build me, uh, encourage me. I'm going to be a, a relationship ruiner. I'm going to be a relationship ruiner. Now, 
The alternative to that, please hear this now. The alternative to that is not that you have to be whole before you can enter into a relationship. You just have to say to God, honestly, and probably to a few people, I am very unwhole. I am very broken. I'm very sad. I'm very scared. I'm very incapable of sharing what I'd like to share. But in my relationships, in that, I have a mustard seed of faith in the grace of God to open my mouth and take this hand and put it on that shoulder and speak this word out of my brokenness that will meet your need. And probably, if you have that faith and go ahead and exercise it in your need, it will mean more than the self-sufficient strong person speaking that word. So, do you hear those two things? I'm trying to walk a thin line here by saying, don't, don't be a, a user of people to satisfy your brokenness. Don't let people feel used by you. Come into the relationship with all of your needs that we all have and seek to find out something about them. Find out something about them. Speak of their issues. Ask questions about them. Carry them to the Lord in prayer. Speak a word to them, a little word that God has given you. Supportive. Last one. Faith building. Faith building means that all of life is to be lived by faith in future grace. All of life. You know, I wrote this book. And I have this sense that if we could just find the way to structure our church or to get the mindset that what this book is, is simply a documentation of how to live by faith and future grace, which is how to live the Christian life. But what the book doesn't do and needs another book written by you is describe how to help people live by faith and future grace. What kind of relationships in this room would help you this afternoon live by faith in grace that's coming to you this afternoon? It's not there in the pew yet. And you're facing something this afternoon or Monday or Wednesday or, or Friday, heavy. It's causing anxieties and you don't feel adequate for it right now. What does somebody need to do in your life right now to assure you and make your faith stronger that on Friday grace is coming? It's coming. It's going to be there. That's the way we live together. We find ways of helping each other live by faith in future grace. Faith is defined like this. Being satisfied with all that God is for me in Jesus. So your job in a relationship is to so show God. Hand, touch, hug, speak, word, uh, give, send, phone call, note, whatever. To show God as satisfying for this need right now. He's enough. He's enough. Hang on. Hang on. We got people in crisis of faith right now in this church who don't know if they'll be believing in a week. Some of you know those people. The calling in a relationship is not to be a preacher. It's not to be an expert. It's to have a heart that says, I've tasted something in my life of the all-sufficiency of Christ. I'll just share a little bit of that. I'll just tell him what he did for me, and I'll point him to a verse that meant a lot to me a year ago when I faced 
a tough time and I give it to him. I give it on a note or I give it on the phone. I give it with a hug, but I'm going to give it. And then it's God's business. Ours is to try. The rest is God's. And that's the way the body goes. And we do that differently in a relationship than we do in a sermon like I'm doing right now. Sermon is not enough. Church cannot survive only on preaching. Goes a long way to help. I believe that. That's why I'm a preacher. But it won't be enough. It's not enough to be the church. So I want to pray now as we close. And uh, we'll have some people standing here at the front. And I'm going to stay here for a little while. And if, if you got a bottleneck in your relationships right now and you want us to pray for you or about anything related, we would love to do that. So let's pray. And then you can go. I hope you come back tonight and uh, lift up your voice to the Lord in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, I've said now some of what this first initiative is all about. And I ask that you take my words and multiply them like loaves and fishes in the lives of these brothers and sisters to fill them with a sense of what it means to have a personal, supportive, faith-building relationships of love that are ever-deepening. Lord, thank you so much for what you're doing. You're already doing this at Bethlehem. We've seen it. And we just want to get on the train now that you are pulling. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.